0: I know I said that I was switching to every other week with this show, but I'm going to try and release weekly when I can. This week, I was able to and happy to. So, these days, fundamentalist is a theological swear word. I didn't make that up, but I don't remember who did. But, man, that's true. And I, myself, am guilty of cussing up a storm on this podcast. It's very easy for us, more on the progressive side of the theological spectrum, to use words like fundamentalist, conservative, and evangelical interchangeably. But this has two drawbacks. First of all, it is inaccurate, and that should be reason enough to be more careful. Secondly, it turns people off who are evangelicals, but who are not fundamentalists, or who are conservative or traditionalist in their theology, but who reject the tenets of fundamentalism. So anyone who has ever listened to this show and felt like I labeled them something they were not through careless use of language, to you I now apologize and I present this episode as a token of my remorse, a sacrificed bull on the Day of Atonement. Um, And as we will hear from Pete Hill today, fundamentalism is not going anywhere and it has not gone the way of the buffalo as so many liberal thinkers have predicted that it would over the years. What Pete and his psychologist co-authors are most interested in is the question, what exactly does fundamentalism give people such that it remains so psychologically powerful? And that's a question I know that many of you are asking and that I'm asking myself, especially because we know people who actually do fit the mold of fundamentalists. And most of the time, We cannot make sense of the way that they see the world or still see the world. Why haven't they changed the way we've changed? But in order to answer the question of what it does for people, fundamentalist psychology needs to be understood on its own terms, not from afar by judgmental liberals. And this is uh, really the benefit of this book. Additionally, many of us have seen friends leave Christianity entirely and seemingly pick up a new fundamentalism in its place. Perhaps if we understand what's going on with religious fundamentalists, we can also understand what's going on with atheist fundamentalists or hyper-progressive post-Christian crusaders or whatever kind of fundamentalist you want to fill in the blank with. I devoured Pete's book, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Just like my interview with Oliver, today's interview was made possible as part of the Theo Psych Project, hosted by Fuller Seminary's Office of Theology, Science, and Religion. Oops, Science, Theology, and Religion, star office. One last note, I say this often at the end of episodes, but I think a lot of people probably miss it. One of my editors, including today's editor of this conversation, is Josh Gilbert. He is available for other podcast editing and similar audio work. He's fantastic. I would vouch for him and recommend him. And his email is in the show notes. Okay. Into the world of fundamentalist psychology. So, Pete, there's a reason that your book that you co-authored isn't called The Psychology of Christian Fundamentalism, but rather Religious Fundamentalism, because some of this stuff appears to transfer over. Yeah?
1: It does. I think some of the principles that we're talking about apply to multiple religions. Actually, it's not even just religious fundamentalism. I would say, you know, we could talk about the principles as they apply to scientism, to Marxism, to capitalism. I mean, we could go on and on, but I think that the principles are applicable
0: to any strongly held ideological system. That's awesome. So because you're a scientist, I want to start out by acknowledging that not only do I recognize so much of the thinking, the models in the book, but I've also been hurt by that thinking. And so I'm not coming to this from a dispassionate perspective, and I want to be clear about that. It's personal for me. But that also leads to my first question, because I was not raised fundamentalist. I was raised in a kind of, I don't know, a milk toast kind of middle-of-the-road evangelical zeitgeist in the 90s. So how come... I can recognize so much of the thinking and the scripture interpretation in this description of fundamentalist Christianity. My guess
1: is, I don't know, don't don't know you personally, but sure. my guess is that that there's a lot of multiple influences. I mean, our parents are obviously, and home home life is one huge environment. I don't know anything about the church that you grew up in, but there might have been some really strong influences that were, were going on in your life from the church. Uh, maybe the selection of friends that you had, youth group leaders, all sorts of uh, other individuals. Maybe just you know other friends of your parents who you just they were over at your house a lot. Right, <laughs> those right. kinds of things. Yeah. So I'm not so sure. That that it's strictly from the home, although I think probably the single best predictor or the single most influential predictor probably is the home. But there's all these other things that we're probably operating. So you just can have some sort of identification with some of this.
0: Generally speaking, just for our own kind of clarity of of mind here, what is the overall sort of difference or overlap between fundamentalism and evangelical Protestantism?
1: I think that there's several different things, but I think it has more to do with the attitude versus the content with which, or the process with which versus the content with which doctrinal beliefs, uh, religious beliefs are held.
0: You're saying that's more the difference is the is the process, not the content.
1: That's right. Okay. That's right. Because I mean, a lot of the same evangelicals, broadly speaking, will hold to many of the same doctrinal views as, as do fundamentalists. The question, I think, is how do those views interrelate with the rest of the world and our understanding of the rest of the world? And out of that, I would argue that fundamentalists have quite a different process than do evangelicals who are a little more, I guess I'm, I don't want to call them pluralistic evangelicals, that term has been used, but just a little more broadly defined evangelicalism.
0: Yeah. Um, So uh, I mentioned to a couple of people that I'm doing this interview with you. I posted a photo of your book on Instagram and I chatted with a couple of people. And a couple of times it was like, oh, are you going to find out that fundamentalists are these like deeply unhealthy authoritarian people. I think there's a sense in which all of us as kind of naive psychologists assume that fundamentalism is a personality trait. But you guys start the book by saying people have tried to find this and they haven't found it. It's not in personality traits that fundamentalism gets made.
1: That's right. It's not. I mean, I don't know of any study that has really just gone out and done a, a personality profile of a group of fundamentalists and compared it with the personality profile of what I would call non-fundamentalist religious thinking. And for that matter, a personality profile of non-religious people. My prediction would be that you're not going to find many, many differences, not in terms of personality, Now, in terms of certain values and certain ways of holding beliefs that that you'll find it, but I don't think personality is going to be a very good predictor of any of that.
0: Another thing that you guys choose not to do in the book is to rush in with your psychological models, end quote, to try and explain why people hold so stubbornly to fundamentalist ideas or, or concepts. Why that decision not to rush in with the models?
1: I think, first of all, you really want to try to understand versus try to explain human behavior. In order to describe it, you really have to get to know the people that you're describing. In all honesty, I think a lot of psychological researchers haven't done that very well.
0: But it seems obvious. Like, if you want to understand the Maori tribesmen, if you want to understand the the Bush people of Congo, no one thinks anymore that you can just sort of well take some video and we'll analyze their move like you no you have to go in the bush like you have to live there for a while and that really sort of was when anthropology flourished as a science is when people started doing that right yeah. when they got out of the armchair and got into the field, and it seems like it should be the same thing for any group of yeah, religious people. Yeah, it should be. It should be.
1: Uh, unfortunately, in this case, it's not. And I'm not so sure if people actually feel that they're close enough uh, to the fundamentalist I mean, you know, geographically, you work with them. Uh, there's a fundamentalist church down the road, and they don't seem that bizarre. So maybe that's—that people have this sense that— no, I, I think I understand where they're coming from, and so they might apply that psychological theory. There is, I think, one other element here, and that is that many of the people who are involved in the study, the sociological and psychological study of fundamentalism, came out of a fundamentalist background. Are hurt by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and are hurt by it, but not necessarily are hurt by it. Some okay. of them just said, you know— I, I, just, I just don't find that very convincing. Sure, Yeah, sure. yeah. and so I, I don't buy it. And then I think some of it, too, is the, the psychological training that they go through. And it's easy once you get in, indoctrinated, I'll actually use that term, in graduate school in psychology to think, no, it's just all these things that we're studying. And uh, you're not really going beyond the, the boundaries of your own discipline to think about uh, the phenomena of interest.
0: But just in this seminar just an hour ago that you were leading, you talked about overconfidence bias, yeah. which psychologists ought to be familiar with, <laughs> and, and their own confidence that they understand fundamentalists is something that they should actually, if they're doing good work, they should be questioning that, right? They should, and that's the
1: model of good science. The distinction, I think, is that not all science follows a good science model. So I think that there are some some serious... Errors that are being made, and it's not that Ralph and Paul and myself, when we wrote this, that we're not guilty of the same thing. I'm sure that we are. We also felt that fundamentalists are getting uh, an unfair, bad rap, and I would say none of the three of us would be identified as fundamentalists. I would be the most conservative, probably, of the of the three. I would be the closest. And in fact, Ralph uh, Hood, how it all got started was one time in an informal conversation when we were in a, we were sharing a hotel room at a convention, and we were just sitting around watching TV, and he sort of said to me, he said, uh, well, Pete, you know, you're a fundamentalist, and went on and on and on, and I didn't hear anything else. I just heard, I'm a <laughs> fundamentalist? Wait a minute, you know? <laughs> and uh, actually, there's a, a guy by the name of uh, Walter Houston, who back in the 1950s called fundamentalism the theological swear word, and yeah. uh, and and so I had that kind of reaction. This would have been you know twenty some years ago when Ralph and I had that kind of conversation, but it led to a lot of discussion. And by uh, six hours later, we had outlined the book; I hadn't written it yet, but yeah. we outlined it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know I think I'm guilty of that. I think, and I've had some people mention this, even in a conversation with like myself and and Tom Ord, who's a careful theologian. We sometimes collapse evangelical, inerrant, fundamentalist, and we start using them interchangeably when we're talking about a particular theological move someone might make. And I've had people go, hey, those are not the same thing. And, you know, an evangelical might, especially if they're theologically minded, might resent being called that theological swear word, a fundamentalist. <laughs> yes, right. So I'm, I'm grateful for this as a chance to sort of clear the air there and get a better understanding of these terms. But speaking of which, what are some common stereotypes of fundamentalists that you think are unfounded.
1: Yeah, I think first and foremost, and a lot of it r- probably goes back to the monkey trials of the ni- 1920s. Yeah, the Scopes uh, Monkey Trial. Yeah, yeah, the Scopes Monkey Trial. And some of it was actually the writer Harold Mencken, Harold or Walter Mencken, I'll have to check mm. into that. One of those Menckens. Yes, right. Who did quite a bit of writing for the, uh, I believe it was the New York Times, and sort of identified, uh, you know, these, these backward folks down in Tennessee, uneducated, dirt under their fingernails. And I think, some of that, and I'm not necessarily saying it's because of Mencken, but I am saying that I think that somehow what evolved out of that was a stereotype, and it it does have to do with uh, lack of education, lack of sophistication, probably not a much exposure to the world outside of their own little world, and so you off, might
0: think kind of rural or semi-rural.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and
0: although, of course, not always. No,
1: not in, always. In point of fact, that's right. But not that's always. the stereotype. That's right. That's the stereotype, and you know, in all honesty, there there is some psychologists call it stereotype accuracy too. So the, the if you were to say where are some of the fundamentalists, you might find a higher percentage in some parts of the country sure. and out in the rural areas and so forth. But that's not at all to say that just because a person is out there or looks a particular way or dresses a particular way or only has a high school of edu- education, that's not to say that that's going to predict that they're a fundamentalist.
0: So your guys's model, you call it an intratextual search for meaning. We're going to get more detail on this model. But first, can you give us just a basic definition of these terms, the word intratextual and then the phrase search for meaning? And that will give us some, some scaffolding. Sure.
1: sure. Yeah, thanks. I think that the word intratextual just really means that the, the text is given privilege to the point that it is the supreme authority, okay? And so you have to, if, if it's the supreme authority, you have to work from within the text.
0: Intra. Yeah. Intra
1: versus intertextuality. Yeah. Which means no, no other text can match up to it. So I think that is perhaps the single most guiding principle uh, in our particular model.
0: So if, you, if someone comes in and makes an argument to a fundamentalist and they don't cite chapter and verse, that's just not an argument. That's right. Or something like that. That's that just right. doesn't rise to the level of something I need to consider.
1: That's right. And that's where we too tend to stay in our own little worlds because the fundamentalists who might want to do this in the form of evangelism uh, or proselytizing of the faith, might think, well, by quoting scripture verses, that's what's going to be convincing to Okay, me.
0: so now the first thing I really recognize then in this conversation is like the Four Spiritual Laws Handbook kind of stuff that we would, tracks that we would pass out to people. And in reflecting on them later in life, I was just thinking like, okay, I just gave someone some paper and on it were written Bible verses, but like I didn't motivate why— they should trust those as an authority. And I don't think that people really question that from within my movement. And and it was not fundamentalist, but it was probably whoever wrote the tracts might have been, you know, or whatever so resources we had access to at my more mainstream evangelical church. But there's a logical step missing. And this is kind of what you're talking about. But from a fundamentalist perspective, it makes perfect sense. This is the only place you get this kind of information. So here it is. It's from the Bible. Right.
1: And there's a built-in mechanism that that's at work here, and that is that, well, if a person just can't accept that evidence in and of itself, then the Holy Spirit's not working uh, in their lives. And that's the
0: back door. That's, that's right. the way out. That's yeah. that's yeah.
1: That's that's the uh, safety net uh, in in the argument itself.
0: Yeah, and and. Uh, of course, I'm very quick to go, that's a bad argument, but we should note how psychologically effective that backdoor really is. Absolutely, right. It, it does. It gives you a complete system there for that's how right. to explain the, the data that you mm-hmm. encounter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's intratextual, and then we're, later we'll talk about the opposite, which is intertextual, okay. which is basically what this podcast is. And then the second one is search for meaning. So you say fundamentalism. Is a search for meaning. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, to develop a meaning system is, I think, central perhaps, to most people's lives. I mean, even the atheist, I think, is also searching for meaning. They might just have a totally different set of criteria upon which to answer their, their, their meaning. So it is very subjective, I think, mm-hmm. uh, idiosyncratic. But there are certain characteristics, and what's, what's nice is if the person—the the search word suggests motivation. Okay. okay. So they're very motivated to find meaning. And here is a message that makes total sense to them. And it's the coherency of the message and the understanding, the ability to understand that message that then reinforces the search process. So maybe, and I think this often becomes a motivation, and, and I'm not necessarily saying that this is all hocus pocus. I, I'm part of a small group. I want to learn more about my faith system and so forth and how other people understand it. So I'm not necessarily saying that that this is even unique to, to fundamentalists. I think, I think a lot of folks do this. So who we select as friends, who we have conversations with, and so forth. So my view is that that fundamentalists do have a search for meaning, but so does everybody else and this happens to be uh, a very convincing meaning system that satisfies uh, their needs now again, how much of this is just simply uh, explaining on a naturalistic level and how much of this is is God infused? We didn't make that call. You're not this. putting your
0: thumb on the scale for that no. you're just describing that's yeah. right. So would it be an overstatement to say everybody participates in a search for meaning and for fundamentalists that search for meaning is intratextual and that's what separates them or is that is that a little going a little too far? I
1: think it's not just what separates fundamentalists because I think often people do look for coherent meaning systems. I think the scientist looks for a coherent meaning system. Uh, in my field of social psychology, it's putting together a lot of the pieces of the puzzle, and at some point, it might be convincing enough to the scientist so that he or she uh, is essentially a fundamentalist scientist. The distinctive characteristic for religious fundamentalists is the message of the, the religious faith itself. I should also say that we use the term intratextual, and of course, in, in our world, in Christianity, we're referring to the Bible, to Scripture, but... But in other world religious systems, it's not even necessarily written. Now, it is in many and in most, in fact. But in some religious systems, uh, it might be an oral tradition that's being passed on. So we have to keep that in mind. We have a very broad definition of of the word textual
0: there. Another thing you guys say that I think is interesting, for fundamentalists, religion is a total way of life. Uh, And that is one of the things that does kind of fly in the face of a more kind of polite society type of religion, maybe American civil religion in the mid-century of everybody's kind of a Methodist or everybody's kind of a Lutheran or Catholic. And you can think of, and I very much heard many times, my evangelical Christianity that I was raised in contrasted against that kind of milk toast Sunday Christian type thing. Is that kind of what Total Way of Life is getting at?
1: I think so. I think it's very systemic. All right especially among the fundamentalists in this intra-textual model, that, that there's going to be different moving parts, but they're all interconnected. And uh, that's what the model says, and that uh, we actually, in a, in a picture of the model in the book, we enclose all of that with a continuous circle, no breaks in the circle. Right. And that's what we mean by calling it systemic. I think it all works internally first. And it has to make that kind of sense, an internal sense that's there. So that's what we mean by a total way of life. Now, it has all sorts of implications across basic psychological uh, levels of functioning. Uh, Psychologists often talk about the cognitive level, our, our thinking patterns. And, you know, the Bible talks about that. Uh, there's certain things to to uh, uh, think on the things that are righteous in Philippians 4.8. Uh, the Bible also talks about uh, the affect uh, component. Uh, the whole concept of love, I think, is affectively laden.
0: By affect, you mean emotion. Emotion. That's right. That's the, right. the that's psychological right. term. Yeah. That's
1: right. Sorry about that. That's and okay. then, of course, behavior. A lot of behavioral restrictions, not only in the Old Testament—that's often where we think of them—but but in the in the New Testament uh, as well. Uh, we're we're to take care of the of the widows, for example, in in uh, in James. So there's principles that are here, and they're. They're, they're far-reaching principles, and some of those principles you know, feed off of each other. So that's when, when you're talking about a, a way of living. I think it's a complete picture, but more than anything else, it's the, it's the systematic coherence of all of that, how that fits together into a fundamentalist way of thinking.
0: The fundamentalists are the ultimate, the Bible is a rule book, a guidebook for life, folks, right? They literally, any question you've got, they're the most likely to say, Any question, you can find it somewhere in the text.
1: That's right. Now, we do have to make an important distinction. And, and we also point this out in the uh, in the book, and that is they're not necessarily literalist about everything.
0: Right. Literal you? is, yeah, is not always the, the right term to get at what we're talking about here.
1: That's right. So it's easy to suddenly think that, oh, you're taking everything really literal, and that's how the answer is found. No, sometimes it's understood that this is uh, not meant to be taken literal. But in all honesty, uh, some things are taken literal, and I don't think we have a good sense. Psychologists, for instance, who Study this. I don't think really have a good sense of how people make that call. Should this be taken literal or should this be taken figuratively? So, for example, in one of the chapters, we talk about serpent handlers, and they have a literal interpretation of a verse in the Book of Mark. But I also don't see any one-eyed uh, fundamentalists necessarily who uh, who took the the notion that if your eye offends you, to pluck it out. Right. You know. So they understand that figuratively. And really, how do, how do fundamentalists make that distinction is not clear.
0: There are a couple like infamous self-flagellating kind of folks who have cut off their hands and stuff like yeah, that, but they're yeah. very much the exception. Yeah, not they're the rule. exception. They're not the rule. There's a whole lot of, the, the vast majority of fundamentalists would say that's silly. I should also um, say, I have a, a link to a photo of your model in oh. the show notes. So if people want to pull that up, they should be able to click on it and see that circle and the arrows and all that stuff, which... Might be helpful visual aid. But sticking with this idea of being a total way of life, you guys argue that this makes it more psychologically successful. What do you mean by that and, and why is that the case?
1: I think it makes it successful in the sense that we look for consistency in, in a lot of our cognitions or a lot of our beliefs.
0: And you're saying people do, not psychologists, do. just yeah people humans do. I'm do. sorry, yeah.
1: yes, right, people do, and so as long as you can find consistent connections there. And then you can create this this coherent view uh, of of how all of these things hang together. Then I think that there is going to be success that the total package then is pretty convincing. So we have uh, within that model several different parts you know we have really three what we thought were three primary players that were here, and that those three primary players there's a logical and and consistent for the fundamentalist way of thinking about each of of these players. And uh, that's what creates the system for them.
0: What are these players?
1: These players. Well, the first one we've already talked quite a bit about, intra-textuality. Now we might go into more depth on that or examples of it, but it's this idea that the text itself holds the truth within itself. The second principle uh, and we could go in any direction because if somebody's looking at the model, we have arrows pointing back and forth here. Right. So a uh, second is that there is a sacred meaning or sacred sacred writings, I think, that that's there. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the claim. The sacred writing is the claim of of Scripture itself. Okay. okay? And that it is sacred. It is the Word of God. It all is, right? yeah. And you can't get any more sacred than that. And then the idea that there is such a thing as absolute truths. The fundamentalist is going to to hold, yes, there's an absolute reality that's out there. They're not going to be some sort of social constructionist. You create your own reality. Uh, It's really there, and uh, the Bible addresses it, and we work at this... Intra-textually, therefore. So there's this a kind is of a how to, all these things hold together.
0: And there's a one-to-one relationship between some things that are said in the Bible and the absolute truths. That's right. And there's no interpretive process there. Now, they will maybe disagree on which things are absolute, but what they share in terms of different fundamentalist groups, but they will each have a view that like, this thing, this corresponds one-to-one. It says it here, that's true in the real world, and you don't deviate from that. There's no argument to be made.
1: That's true. And furthermore, that it is, that the text itself makes it apparent enough. You don't have to come up, you don't have to concoct some sort of, of weird uh, interpretation. Uh, I'll just use an example from the from a fundamentalist perspective, you know, the the whole feminist theology for instance. Right. That's unnecessary. The text makes it clear. The text speaks with authority and with clarity. There's a, you know, the fancy term that theologians use is that there's a certain uh, perspicuity of scripture.
0: So what kind of things count as these absolute truths? I mean, I mentioned because you guys mentioned in the book that different fundamentalist sects will have different absolute truths that they think they are getting out of the text. So what, what are some examples of that?
1: Okay, well, certainly the uh, some of the ones we talk about in the book, and we, we choose these because these are the ones that we're most familiar with. The serpent handlers, for instance, they have a particular text. Really, it's only one particular verse in the book of Mark, although they usually phrase it within the context of a few verses that are there, about four or five verses. Okay. And that becomes you know the the guiding rule for—and uh, it's an indication, taking up serpents, that it's an indication of your faith in God.
0: Okay? The, 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 it's like one little line. It's like, and they shall take up serpents. That's right. That's right. And that's it. That's but right. Like, but put in this framework, and even uh, maybe perhaps— the author of Mark meant it this way: that, like, it's an example of, hey, even this dangerous thing is not does not hurt them because it's a proof of God's, it's a proof of the Holy Spirit, an anointing of some That's sort. That's right, yeah.
1: And and it's also, I think, showing a, a faith in God and in God's goodness. So even if people die and people do die from bites, yeah. okay, among the serpent handlers, it's somewhat rare, but it does happen. They will frame it. They will reframe it as simply saying, well, this was God's will, and and it's probably good for us to see that, because look how courageous so-and-so was that they were actually willing to sacrifice their own lives for this principle. And they'll often point to Christ then. You know, Christ was willing to sacrifice a life for a principle.
0: But that's interesting, because I thought what you were going to say is that they will say, well, that person took up serpents when they weren't ready. They didn't have enough faith to do it. And I was going to say, that sounds like prosperity gospel, where you have a way of explaining, well, this person did well, and this person didn't do well. This person was healed. This person wasn't healed. Well, if they weren't healed, they didn't have enough faith. And if they were healed, they had enough faith. So it, they won't do that move.
1: They don't do that in the, among the serpent handlers. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, what
1: Ralph Hood, who is a serpent handling expert, not as a serpent handler himself, but as uh, an understanding of serpent He's the one who did the
0: field work with the serpent handlers. That's right. That's right. That's what I
1: meant by being a a serpent handling expert. (laughs) He's an expert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what Ralph tells me is that uh, he's not a fundamentalist himself. And and he had to develop a a rapport with those people. It kind of goes back to your original question. You have to get to know the people. You have to develop a relationship With the people. And he did that. And now he's well accepted uh, in the serpent handling community, or at least in some communities, I should say, of serpent handlers. And one of the things that he has observed is that these people do not recognize how skilled they have become in handling serpents. Right. And yet, they will attribute uh, the fact that they're not bitten, that they haven't lost their lives or anything, to God's grace, to God's willingness, just as God is willing. They're very providential about this, just as God is willing to take some lives uh, in this. And it's all a demonstration of faith.
0: Yeah, interesting. So they would not be amenable to... We were talking about this in the car the other day, that like, you know, there's a lot of ways to learn things. You could be explicitly taught. But we also, especially as kids, we learn through mimesis. We learn by watching someone else. And in fact, I think the going theory leading up to language for human evolution or proto-human evolution is, well, first we could make tools and and just show each other. But like eventually we wanted to be more – we wanted to go further than just that. And so we develop language and we can teach didactically or whatever. So even kids growing up in this thing, like, they are watching expert snake handlers, and they're seeing how their arms move and what they do when the snake moves in and what they do when the rattle starts going. And so they are actually getting a lot of skills, but they wouldn't want to think of it that way as, no. the, as a, the main causal mechanism of their being able to do this. That's right.
1: But the children are there, and the reason why the children are there is they, they want to teach the children the importance of faith. <laughs> Okay. Well, so maybe they are doing that, but they're also teaching them how to handle snakes. <laughs> That's right. They are. They are. At the same now, time. Now, the children, to, to be fair, the children are kept a long ways away from the snakes. Yeah. It's not a child abuse thing. No, sure. it's not. And and we have to be careful about that because some folks have accused serpent handlers of that. Right.
0: Well, and uh, Dennis Covington, who's book that I loved, Salvation on Sand Mountain, which was my introduction to the snake handlers. He got started writing about the case because he was a journalist. And one of those famous guys uh, went to prison and basically was accused of using the snake off premises to to kill his wife, I think, or something like that, or his ex-wife. And, and so obviously, you know, things can go awry. Uh, but mostly this is done in a controlled environment within a service in a certain way at certain times. And they're, That's right. they're protective of the kids and Correct. stuff. So, thinking about the model and, and that hard circle, that hard line circle where it's not permeable. Um, so, everything within that circle is the text and the claims of the text and the absolute truths that we get from the text. Given that psychology, that worldview, what must a fundamentalist do when they're confronted with people who don't share that view? And, and why must they do what they must do?
1: Well, I think more than anything else, they're probably thinking, at least, that uh, the, the most important thing I can do is show how meaningful this is, how at least meaningful to me that it is. That's my testimony right. that I live a, a wholesome life and it's quite an an alternative to many of the problems that we see in society. So it it, it is, I think, the idea that we are representatives of Christ here on earth and that we need to uh, live up to that very privileged
0: position. Now, this is another thing that I really recognize from my own upbringing in terms of, you know, and I would argue this was the more healthy of the potential understandings of evangelism. The healthiest one was let them see the light that you have and ask you about it. You know, that's, that was sort of like, okay, I could get behind that one, even as a disgruntled teenager. But I also recognize that in thinking about conservative writer Rod Dreher and his book, The Benedict Option, the idea that like biblically conservative groups are have lost the culture war and what they ought to do is live a bit more communally and like let their light shine before men, let the proof be in the pudding. Now, I don't share... A lot of Rod Dreher's assumptions about faith and the world, and I have a different sexual ethic than he has, but but that's not, like, an awful way to think about it. I mean, on the face of it, like, hey, prove that this—proof of concept, right? And so that part seems to me to be not, not really peculiar to fundamentalism. Yeah. Yeah, I was—in uh, the last—it oh, was about a
1: year ago, I had a conversation with uh, a pastor of what I would consider a, a fundamentalist church— And he kind of surprised me, okay? And how he surprised me was he was talking about his church and a new program that the church is having. The demographic around the church, the geographic area, is changing quite a bit. It's largely becoming uh, African American, and this is uh, definitely a a Caucasian uh, church uh, in that that demographic. And they decided they have a nice gym there, and they are just going to open up the gym a couple nights a week for kids to safely come, have a a program that is strictly sports-oriented. And this is the part that surprised me. He said... We don't have any other program associated with that. We're not trying to evangelize with this, hmm. not, not explicit evangelism. We're not, you know, suddenly passing out the track or anything else. That
0: sounds more like a Catholic way that they're doing.
1: <laughs> yes, I think so. That's so that's interesting, yeah. And, and he said, uh, uh, eventually, we, we hope that it will create some curiosity among sure. people, but sure. let them come to us rather than us yeah. uh, forcing ourselves upon them. Yeah. Oh, that was, that's from a very conservative church. And I thought, you know, uh, there's some real value and in, in some, some good sense that that pastor's talking about.
0: Okay, but now to use your model, yeah. if you pressed him, he would need to find somewhere in the Bible, some chapter and verse to, right? He wouldn't say, well, social science has shown that when you try and force people into religious—like, he wouldn't quote a study. He would not be using some other source of authority. He would say he would find some section of, like— let your life before, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean preach to them. That might just mean love them or whatever, like something about loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, I wouldn't want to be preached at, so I won't preach at them. Like, but, but the point is with your model, if he is fundamentalist, he's got to find it in the text somewhere.
1: That's right. And I think that uh, they had to come up with some justification. It, it's it's ironic because he did tell me I remember this now. You, you 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 sparked this memory that he himself had to do this, and then he had to convince the elders of the church right. uh, yeah. that that this was healthy. And it was it was after a lot
0: of consideration and after a lot of Bible study and after
1: a lot of prayer that they entered into this program.
0: Okay, so back to the model. So the absolute truths and the sacredness of the text, these are all inside the circle. And it's the non-permeable circle. Now, over to the right of the circle, you have these things labeled peripheral beliefs. And what we're going to find, the difference between intratextual and intertextual is that the peripheral beliefs in intertextual, they have an arrow in to to the circle. But on the intratextual fundamentalist model, the only arrow is going from the absolute truths out to the peripheral beliefs. So, first of all, what count as peripheral beliefs, and what's that causal relationship in the fundamentalist model?
1: Yeah, we we use the term belief, and in some ways, I think that that's maybe uh, a little misleading. And now, many years later, I might have preferred just you know peripheral thinking or peripheral okay. cognition or something along those lines. Sure, but it's just simply that no, we, fundamentalists live in the real world. They go to the dentist. Uh, they go to the dentist. Right. Yeah. They 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 work in uh, jobs that are not necessarily associated with the church or Yeah, with their They faith. design
0: bridges. I mean, they they That's are, right. They do they do finance. you That's know, International right. finance and those yeah.
1: and the, that, that those require skill sets. And you have to develop those skill sets. And there was an education that they had to go through in order. They value all of that. They're very good. Most fundamentalist churches are are ahead of the non-fundamentalist churches in the use of technology. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, at least in their worship okay. service. And so they know that that's an effective way. Uh And in fact, historically— we had a whole chapter on the history of fundamentalism. And when you go back and look at it, they were leaders in the in, in using radio, say, for instance, back in the 1930s. It's uh, like
0: the first podcast <laughs> or something. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, that's right. right. So you really are a fundamentalist. I you're, guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the point is that there is a world that they understand that's there, okay? The lack of how those peripheral beliefs could infiltrate or lead back into the system is that they bracket all of that. They keep it off to the side. That's fundamentally different than the the, the systemic thinking that's involved in uh, our relationship with God. So they don't allow, because otherwise, now, the kinds of things I just talked about, technology and, you know, building bridges and and all of that, they're not so worried about that. But what they are worried about are people like me, okay? People who yeah. are psychologists who are trying to study them. And those are the folks that or, – or a lot of things that are covered in the humanities
0: and philosophy and liberal theologians. Okay, this, no, this is where it really hit my story. I, de- I declared a philosophy major at 17. And for the next, you know, rest of my life, uh, there are certain Christians that that will come up and they will quote back at me. Well, don't be swayed by the philosophy of man, right? And they're basically like, that was a bad thing to study. That is more likely to lead you astray than it is to help you follow the path that you know you ought to follow. That's right. So in their
1: language, or at least in the language of the model that we put together, yeah. philosophy will give you a lot of peripheral beliefs that will challenge what, what we say is it should be protected from
0: those yes. beliefs. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so I want to get into that intertextual, which is the opposite, where the peripheral beliefs are allowed to come in. One more note before that, the fact that they have these peripheral beliefs and these bracketed systems, of they might be an engineer or they might be a literature professor or whatever they are, Although maybe they're less likely to be a literature professor because of the humanities. But whatever they are, this to you says – they're not closed-minded. It's not like they're like, we know this and plug our ears, la, 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 don't talk to me. They can do everything. They just won't let it into the center of their meaning system or something like that.
1: That's right. And they're they're convinced that it should not – do that. It should not influence the center of that meaning system.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's talk about intertextuality then. Okay. So uh, here's an example. I have I found myself uh, reading your book, oh, I'm an intertextual Christian, clearly. And so I would say, like, let's say I read a book about evolution or an article or something. I go, oh, that's really interesting. Um, I will first think, if I'm thinking theologically, I'll think, well, okay, does that challenge any of my current theological beliefs If it does, do I have more confidence in those beliefs or in this new finding? If I have more confidence in the new finding, then I start thinking, well, okay, so are there other ways of thinking about this doctrine that would line up with this? You know, original sin is a good one, for instance, or something, you know, you might go, well, probably wasn't passed down. Sexually, like Augustine thought, because that doesn't seem to work with what we know, so i 'm doing an intertextual thing there, right, like my circle around my sacred text, which it is still sacred, and I do believe in some absolute truths, but they 're negotiable, and the the peripheral beliefs or peripheral cognitions, other things I might learn, that arrow points in as well as pointing out that's right, right. that's the difference that's right, so there is this interaction,
1: I guess you might say with things that you learn. That really are not part of the of the system. So inside, first of all, inside the picture, the circle itself is now permeable, yeah. okay, which suggests that there's this interaction between that which exists outside the circle with that which exists within. Notice though that within the circle, when we're talking about intertextuality, we're saying that there are authoritative texts, plural.
0: Okay. All right. Got it. That's So helpful.
1: so and that's a judgment call. What what counts as an authoritative text? Mm-hmm. Certainly for Christians who are still seriously committed within their faith, but who don't fall into the fundamentalist camp, uh, they might be open to the influence of some other texts that might help them. Uh, it might help unpack even some scripture from their, their perspective. Okay?
0: A Wesleyan quadrilateral would be an example of scripture, reason, tradition, experience, these are all authorities that even if you think scriptures on the top you see a, a legitimate causal arrow in every direction that they inform each other because you'll say well there's multiple interpretations of this text and here's how I'm going to discern with God's help which one is the the right one
1: i would give a qualified agreement with that okay and here's here's why I do think that a lot of fundamentalists could accept the Wesleyan quadrilateral, okay, but they would do so because they will put certain limits on what counts as good reason, okay. What counts as uh, good testimony? It's not going to be the testimony of of anybody else or 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 from within the meaning system of somebody Mm. else, okay. Okay, it's going to have to fit within what has already been decided as uh, legitimate based upon the, the, the system itself. So okay. my guess is that there certainly is, among fundamentalists, a little more of a skepticism about the value of pure reason. Right. Uh, they would be a little more skeptical, little question a little bit more. Anybody who is trying to make a claim about understanding Scripture that's doing so strictly on the basis of pure reason.
0: A thing that's come up with me and Tom Ord, who's been on the show, and then just even in conversation with Oliver Crisp yesterday, who's also here at the, the little conference, I have a kind of an intuition that I share with Tom that like, even if I'm wrong about some things about God, which invariably I will be wrong about some of them, it's important for me to have a logically coherent understanding of God so that I can act out of one understanding rather than a kind of a schizophrenic. Sometimes I'm afraid of him. Sometimes I'm grateful for him, whatever. Like that there's, that this drives basically systematic theology. This drives the desire to have that so that we can say, okay, this is my view of God and it's open to change, but for now it's coherent. And I can do this. My motivation for that out of a kind of psychological health, that would not have a lot of purchase if I was trying to argue that to a fundamentalist.
1: Not in and of itself. Now, right. I think the fundamentalist, whether that person recognizes it or not, is quite dependent upon it all holding they're together. Doing making so they're, they're doing it. They're doing it, yeah. It. yeah but, but to say that that's the reason for doing it, I think they would, be in, they would deny that.
0: Yeah. Okay, so moving on from the model, there is this fantastic short bit in the book where you pull from the work of Robert mm-hmm. Withnow, And he makes a distinction. I've never, I'd never read this before between two types of religious people, seekers and dwellers. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on this because I think this actually gets a lot to the, to the heart of the kind of people who tend to like my podcast, seekers Mm -hmm. versus those who think that maybe it's well intentioned, but ultimately destructive dwellers. Can you just talk about seekers and dwellers and how that fits into your guys' work?
1: Yeah, I, first of all, the term seekers, I think, is—I mean—that's a term that we often hear in 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 uh, theological circles, yeah. uh, and some some churches are what seeker Secret. friendly. That's not what he's talking about. That's though. not what he's talking no. about. No, no, he's really saying that there's really two fundamental attitudes or approaches to one's faith. 1 let's talk about dwellers first because he he thought that dwellers was the dominant approach to understanding faith up until about the 1960s. You know, we attribute everything to the 60s. I mean, that was... (laughs) It's an
0: explanatory
1: trump card. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, That's right. And, uh, and, but but I do think there was quite a change in the religious landscape that started and probably about in that era. We didn't notice that the changes weren't that noticeable until maybe a few decades later. But I do think there was some roots that go back to that. So if you take the church in the 1950s, for example, he would say that, that that was characterized by a dweller mentality. And by that, he simply means that it's, it's the rules of the house. Okay? And you abide by the rules. And I don't know what your, your parents were like and their parenting style, but I can tell you mine, if I wasn't <laughs> going to abide by the rules of the house, uh, I, could, I could go ahead and, and head on. Yeah. And, and that was kind of the, the mentality that was there. So here's what we believe. You know, And that's what was taught in the Sunday school classes. And by golly, you better not just come to the 11 o'clock service. You better get there at 930 for the educational hour as well. So there was a lot about denomination a lot of denominational colleges actually had polity courses at that era of what their uh, uh denomination believed it wasn't only doctrinal but how they are structured how
0: you know, here's the presbytery and they have this That's power right. over the pastor That's right. and Yeah, yeah yeah that yep. stuff yeah
1: so you had a lot of that a
0: lot about the rules yeah right yeah.
1: then um but but with the 60s, just like rules in the rest of society became questioned, they became questionable in the church.
0: You right. could also map Vatican II onto that as almost Absolutely. a precursor to the Cultural Revolution.
1: That's right. That
0: is a, a move from, like, Council of Trent-style Catholicism of rules, 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 whatever, to, like, well, yeah. you know, ask people from <laughs> other religions.
1: That's right. You know, That's we right. have
0: to something to learn from Buddhists. Whoa. Yes. That's seekers. I mean, yeah. that's different, right? That's right. And so the attitude here for the seekers
1: is what drives them is not to necessarily follow the, the safety and the security that goes with the rules of the house. That's That was a dweller. The dwellers emphasized safety and security in, in the faith. Seekers were saying, no, I want a little more excitement. I, I want to expand my spiritual vistas. I want to uh, see far beyond just simply what the what the the the, these rules are restrictions, if anything, in my experience of God. And so this began to uh, this shift began, and of course we're seeing um, we're seeing it clearly uh, even among evangelicals today. One of the interesting things about the seeker mentality, though, and what now points this out, is that. Uh, it's probably less stable than, than for sure. And oh, yeah, and uh, let me testify for, to that. Pete. <laughs> for, so for, for for many seekers, you know, once you've kind of figured it out, or think that you figured it out, it's not so exciting anymore. Let's move on. It, it's really the search itself. That for many seekers is what's so motivating and what's fun, and the new discoveries that might come with that. And once those discoveries aren't so new anymore, aren't so novel, then uh, then they're ready to move on. Yeah. And then
0: either do they leave religion behind or become a dweller, or what? What does he think happens then? There,
1: I think I think it bifurcates. I think it polarizes. There. I think there are some who say, and and you know, it's often <laughs> at least uh, at least until the recent you know, maybe the last decade or two, once individuals um, became a little bit older and started having children... Okay, many of them kind of resorted back to a dwelling mentality. Yes, right. But for others, it's no. I want to to move on, and how far I move on, how far that that vista takes me of exploration, of open mindedness, of of moving to to some other reference point in my life whereby my identity is is uh, anchored that those individuals are not going to go back to a dweller mentality. Those yeah. individuals are going to continue in the seeking, and the seeking may may become more and more radical over time. And it might mean, eventually,
0: just chucking the whole thing. I have two questions about this. My first one is, how do you think this might play out, speculatively, of course, with the information age? I mean, I have an intuition that the ubiquity of information, the fact that people who are raised in the church regularly find themselves contemplating the status of people in other religions, and now being able to learn about them in a second and watch documentaries, whatever, Wikipedia, makes it makes a dweller mentality sort of harder to um, feel confident about. There might be some problems psychologically with the age of information, but intellectual humility seems to be one of the benefits of it. How do you think that might play? Out.
1: Well, I I think you're onto something there. When we talk about being in, you know, in the age of media, of course that takes on so many different forms. Yes, you can just within a few pushes of the button on your computer, you can get information that you couldn't possibly get. It used to be a trip to the library and looking it up in the encyclopedia.
0: High barrier of entry.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, The era in which I grew up, things were much more homogenous in the the world of experience for most of us. And I didn't have any uh, Islamic friends. Uh, I didn't have uh, uh, much uh, social connections with people of any different faith tradition, or even for that matter, people who were questioning. Now, there were people who weren't living—I went to public school. There were people, my my best friends, you know, I might say, yeah, they're not Christian. But they would probably not— be uh, saying that they weren't Christian. Uh, they just were living lives that they, they wanted to live that didn't follow necessarily Christian principles. Well, that's quite different than today. I mean, we, there's, there's a lot of very committed people all around us from different faith traditions. Now, that's, by the way, geographically determined in many ways. Uh, I live in the metropolitan Los Angeles area. It's pretty easy for me to, to think that way. I, on the way to work, I drive right by an Islamic temple. right. If I'm out in a small town in Kansas, no, it's going to be still pretty homogenous. And I think for a lot of us on the coasts, we forget about you know the,
0: the flyover states uh, and, and people's experience in, in those states. Right. I would love to spend more time on this, but we don't have it. So I guess I'll just I just want to flag that I'm interested if maybe there's a way to be a new kind of dweller where you recognize the variety of religious experience and expression in the world but you um also recognize the need maybe to to stick with one tradition and and perhaps you can dwell in a more ecumenical more open-minded version of your tradition such that you're not constantly seeking the novel experience um but you're learning so you you're like you're basically moderating your seeking intake So you are setting yourself to consistently learn when you want to, but your own practice stays Christian or stays whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think maybe at the heart of that is just that you want to uh, foster, develop an attitude of respect to recognize that equally intelligent folks—and this is where a lot of intellectual humility comes in—equally intelligent folks— who are also very excellent intentions that they have, think differently. And, and that's true in the world of politics. It's true in the world of religion and so forth. So here's somebody down the street, and those individuals were, were raised within an entirely different religious system. Show some respect for that and, and go with the attitude of how can I learn from that? And out of that, can I have a, a greater sense of valuing my own heritage? And I think if you do that, you're going to develop better relationships with those folks uh, rather than trying to hammer it over, the, over their, their head or hammer their head with, with uh, Bible verses.
0: I've started working on a series of episodes about the end times theology that was very common when I was growing up, rapture, left behind series, antichrist, all of that stuff and mental health symptoms. So uh, anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, et cetera. And uh, this is going to be a little while. It's going to take me a while to kind of put these episodes together. I've I've already done 20 or 21 interviews, and I'm working through the transcripts. But I thought it'd be cool to share one of those interviews with patrons of the show. Uh, patrons of the show spend five bucks or more to support the show financially. You get two exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is only for patrons. And so uh, there's this really crazy conversation with my friend Liz. Um, it, it was rad. It is so it's pretty out there. Uh, it's just one of many super interesting conversations I've already been able to have and I thought I would share it. So here are some clips from that conversation. And if you are interested, then you can become a patron and you can hear this and all the other patron only episodes from the past 12 months.
2: You know, I can remember a few instances uh, as an adult when there'd be a red moon and I'd be like, I need to call my mom and see if she's still there. Not, hey, why am I still here? But let me call my mom and see if she's still here. Cause they're at, and I actually got some of my friends who weren't Christians to buy into that. They'd call me and be like, yo, the moon's red. You might want to call your mom and see if she's still there. Like It was so much a part of my psyche. But I was kind of laughing at it with them. Like, do you believe I was you know, raised believing in this? But that kind of paranoia spreads. If you have any little bit of a paranoid nature, it's not a big jump, I don't think, for people to go in that direction.
0: Is this when you did still believe that, or is this after you stopped believing it?
2: I don't know that I've ever stopped believing it. Rationally, in my mind, I know it's, it's nonsense. Huh. At least I think it's nonsense. <laughs> I want it very much to be nonsense, because if there's any chance that it's true— what does that say about God? Like the way that this has been spun to me my whole life is that this isn't about us. This is about all the other things that happens and we're like just along for the ride. But I just think that's crazy. <laughs> like why would God do that? I would consider the way that doctrine is presented to kids in a lot of those denominations keeps kids in a constant state of uh, fight or flight you know, more of a complex trauma type of a thing where you're hearing all these negative messages, even if that's not what's intended, because I don't want to go so far as to say these horrible people that are trying to ruin their kids' lives, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the intention. It's the result of what happens.
0: You know, you're 49 and you you know in the rational part of your head that this is almost definitely not what the future actually holds, but you, you cannot shake this understanding of God. What does that do to your mental health now?
2: It's a little bit easier for me to control it now, but I have to invest a lot of energy into it. I have to uh, really work hard to not lose my shit (laughs) on the daily uh, because, you know, whatever is happening politically can be tied back to in some way to this. You know, so if a president is, you know, currently whoever the current president is, if they're not supporting Israel, if they're, you know, especially wrapped around Israel, Israel is a big piece of all of that, uh, you know, then. Uh, he might be the Antichrist, or he's, you know, going to be paving the way for the Antichrist. So everything is constructed around, does it connect to the rapture or not? Does it connect to, and are we... Are we doing enough in order to bring the rapture? Like, that's the other weird thing is that they they want it to happen. Like, it's not it's too bad that this is going to happen because things played out the way it did. It's yes, let's bring this on. And woe to anyone who didn't believe, you know, it's twisted. It's twisted.
0: So if that sounds good to you, become a patron. Starts at five bucks a month. There are also scholarships available for people who are in a really tight financial period in their life and cannot afford five bucks a month email me you have permission podcast at gmail.com patreon.com slash dan or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron also you get access to the facebook group which is really fantastic okay enough of that back to the show back to my conversation with pete hill about the psychology of religious fundamentalism Now, we've done a lot on intratextuality and not as much on meaning system. Is there anything else you'd like to say about meaning system before I start asking some particulars about children and and careers and all that? Yeah,
1: I I think we've touched on what I think are the most important things, and and it has a lot to do with the coherency of the meaning system. And does a person understand it and i think that's what religious systems provide there is coherency not only for the fundamentalists, but for almost anybody who adopts any sort of orthodox position okay that it hangs together it makes sense and second that it not only makes sense it doesn't make it doesn't have to make sense uh, in a in a real mysterious sort of way i can bring it down to the tangible of how i'm to live my life day in and day out and i think those are the the meaning systems that are most satisfying and therefore most successful beyond that no i mean we could go into a whole lot like how do you handle discrepant information and so forth but it's probably beyond what, what we're trying to do here
0: Let's talk about children. How does the raising of children fit into this uh, internally coherent meaning system?
1: Well, one of the things that for the fundamentalists is uh, that some of the absolute truths that are being communicated through the sacred writing, that's all given justification through the principle of intratextuality that one of those absolute truths is that you're supposed to raise your children within the faith. Yeah, And so it's a sacred duty, and probably more so for the fundamentalists than than almost anybody else, that this is priority number one. And I've often heard, in fact, I even hear it from my pastor in a non-fundamentalist church, say, that is your duty, number one, is to your family. He even said recently, which kind of surprised me, he says, I, I see that as more important than your duty to God, well, I... I... Depends on what he meant by that, but uh, that, me, I, I'm not so sure that the two are, are mutually exclusive Yeah, each maybe other. not. Right, that actually right. seems
0: like a little bit of nuclear family idolatry there. <laughs> maybe that's, uh, I've read a, a few too many um, sort of radical text theorists on that. A little too much Dale Martin for me to buy that.
1: Okay. For, uh, Jesus is,
0: yeah. I don't know that you can really get yeah. that from Jesus, yeah. but anyway, that's fine. At,
1: at any rate, and he was not promoting homeschooling, he was not promoting Christian schools or anything such as, the, uh, he was just really talking about the family. But. For many fundamentalists, that's how they can interpret this. And the importance of being, the sacred duty of raising your children. And given the fact that our public system violates so many of the principles within the circle, okay? It just doesn't match up well with the the system, the systematic way in which fundamentalists interpret their world. So it gives you all sorts of peripheral beliefs. And those peripheral beliefs are not to infiltrate the
0: system. So the tension there is that it completely violates that that, rant, that circle, that non-permeable circle around those absolute truths in the text. That's right. Mm-hmm. To go to public school is to be intertextual. That is what a modern you know, liberal society education looks like.
1: Yes. Now, there were times um, probably uh, in the past where the fundamentalist uh, would say – You know, what's being taught in the public schools, I don't have a lot of problems with, but I don't think that's today. No. At least not in most parts of the country. Now, again, there might be some areas that are fairly conservative, and they actually are able to uh, promote Christian values within the schools, and they're kind of... Flying under the radar of the government or something, but but that's that's going to be a concern. And my guess is we're going to continue to see a proliferation of either homeschooling or Christian schools. I I, I, I agree. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. I just got I just found some interesting data in Orange County, California, where I live. That I believe it was in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, there were four Christian schools in the county. Today, there are over forty Christian schools in wow. the county. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. One thing about homeschooling there too, there are some people who pursue homeschooling in kind of a um, classic liberal arts degree kind of a sense. There's there's sort of a high-minded uh, – maybe we would associate it more with like Anglicans than than fundamentalists. Uh, and you do see that. I have some friends who are homeschooled and they're like lawyers for the Justice Department and they they really actually got a great education. Their parents are very smart. But for the fundamentalists, that would not be the primary motivation probably. Yeah. would academic excellence?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of them try – You fact still want justify. it. Yeah, yeah you yeah, still they, want yeah, that. They, yeah. they, they value it. Uh, they like it that it's under their own authority. It's, own, it's under their own control. Uh, and you look at how they usually form networks too because they're not going to yep. form networks – Outside of uh, right. outside of their fundamentalist framework.
0: Yeah, you'd think if it was about academic excellence, there would probably be other people who are like, these schools are wasting our kids' time. They're inefficient. Well, why not link up with those homeschoolers? They're not going to do that.
1: No, they're, they're going to find other people that are ideologically aligned with them. Right,
0: mm-hmm. right. So that, that kind of gives it away. Another factor that I recognized from my own upbringing is is the prizing of ministry related careers over all other careers. And this one, oh, I just even felt a little pain as I said those words out. This one hurts because I think I really bought this. And and I'm and I'm a person who feels called to ministry. Like I have felt that specific call on my life, but I also feel like I need to get away from this. Like I I don't actually think that that's to be prized. I just think that's what I'm called to. And it's so ubiquitous. In this certain kind of thinking. So, what did you guys discover about that kind of hierarchy of possible careers?
1: Well, it, it, it's there in the mind of many fundamentalists. Uh, I wouldn't say it's there uh, in, in the mind of all fundamentalists because uh, still the majority of uh, their, their children don't go on into ministry. Uh, there's a lot of other job opportunities that are out there. Sure. Uh, so, uh, and many of the fundamentalists themselves are, are, are not in what we might think of as full time ministry positions. So we have to recognize that first and foremost. But I do think, uh, especially in the churches, I think that there is a message that's being given, that there is something special. Uh, about this. I I once had a colleague, and this was at a a Christian college, who was uh, actually, (laughs) ironically, in the theology department, but I think he was a little bit more of a historian of theology than anything else. And he just decided for the, I don't know, for the fun of it, to to get an advanced uh, theology degree that is more ministry-related so he could be ordained. And so I remember going to the ordination service, and afterwards there was a uh, it was a, on a Sunday afternoon, and, you know, there was a, a nice uh, uh, potluck dinner and so forth. And I remember talking with him, and then somebody else coming up, an elderly gentleman who was in his church, and he he was and he, and I remember him saying, he said, David, I'm finally glad that you're going into ministry. <laughs> he's, a, he's a teacher <laughs> he, at a Christian yeah, school. That's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> And so that conversation went on. And then, and then afterwards, David said to me, he says, you know, you've got all types. He says, I'm not going, I, I'm staying right where I yeah, am. Yeah. Uh, this was just something I just wanted to do. You
0: know. Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's this great section in the book about authority and the way that authority is preserved within the system. And that is through family stuff. But I'm going to quote you. Fundamentalist religion, therefore, has staying power. An ultimate authority is established. That would be the, the text and, and maybe the, the church's interpretation of the text. And a mechanism for reinforcing that authority is provided through responsibility placed on the family, the church, and ordained educational institutions. End quote. Those, those educational institutions would be basically, um, parallel institutions, for instance. So Dallas Theological Seminary will teach Southern Baptist thinking. And so that's a ordained educational institution. Now, to those of us who are intertextual, this sounds pretty sinister. I mean, when you were writing this part, I mean, do you, how did you think about that? Well, I didn't really think about it necessarily from
1: an intertextual framework, even though that's probably where I was coming from, because it does, at least to, to a total outsider, to a person who is uh, not at all invested in a traditional faith system of any sort, for that matter, that does sound very sinister. But I don't know if it's that much different than, say, for instance, the family who— Prizes, education,
0: yeah, Ivy uh, League education, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or white shoe law firm, whatever, right? Yeah, that's right. I, sure. I think
1: the same dynamics are, yeah. are, are are going on. I think
0: that's kind of sinister too. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm enough of a California hippie that I just think like that's a little too much control to exert <laughs> yeah, over your kids yeah, or something, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, and and um, and perhaps it is, but that does seem to be the way that uh, most people. Tend to think about this, and it really goes back to having it as a sacred duty. You see, right? Uh, you know, you yeah, you can't. And as long as it's a sacred duty, as long as it's interpreted that way, uh, it's going to be pretty hard to, to break that. I guess you know, and maybe it's generational difference or, or whatever. I don't see it quite so sinister.
0: <laughs> no, sure, I, that's fine. Yeah. Um, again, as I said at the beginning, I, I've got some wounds here. <laughs> um, so when you guys are describing how fundamentalism provides meaning, the mechanism for that. You, you go through three things. Two of them we've pretty much already talked about. A unifying philosophy of life. We, we've, we've gone over that. It's, it has to fit within the circle. Uh, pro, a sense of coherence. We talked about that as well. We're not letting these other things in. The coherence is going to all be found in the text. The third one we haven't talked about. And this is sort of psychological needs for meaning. And you, you find, you quote some literature that, basically shows four elements of that purpose, value, efficacy, and self-worth. If these are the kind of these are just natural things that human beings need to feel like their life is meaningful. Can we go through each of those just a, a couple sentences each? So how does a fundamentalist system give someone purpose?
1: Certainly the fundamentalist system, I, I'd probably go to the Great Commission more than anything else. Yeah. And that there's purpose because uh, our job is to, is to, to glorify God. And perhaps the best way of doing that is obeying what God commands of us. Uh, what God expects of us. And I think for many, uh, it's taking that Great Commission quite literally.
0: Before we do the other three, it's worth noting, like, everybody's worldview does this. It's not like fundamentalists are the only ones who give people purpose, value, efficacy, and self-worth. That's right. What you're trying to explain as a psychologist is why this sticks around, because there's a sense that, like, shouldn't fundamentalism die out? Isn't it yokely and dumb? And you're like, look, it's not going to die out because it's effective. Yeah. And you're just kind of explaining how it's effective.
1: That's true although uh, it's it's going to be hard to make that case over in Europe Mm. uh, right now, uh, and, how really in a pretty short period of time, there's been a, a, a very radical change that's oh, going resurgence on.
0: Resurgence of certain kinds of fundamentalism. That's right. Right? that's right. Yeah.
1: But I don't know if fundamentalism ever really got itself established quite in the same way there as it did in the States. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's I think there's a more convincing case of it in the States. Uh, I don't know if it's going to always have as much sociological staying power. In other words, the number of
0: people. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Houses in Parliament, or seats in Parliament, or so yeah, to speak. Yeah. Okay, so um, we did purpose. Mm -hmm. How does it provide value?
1: Well, I think uh, simply a reinforcement of value systems uh, that that are there, that there's nothing perhaps more gratifying to a uh, a fundamentalist parent than to see their child grow up in the faith, to uh, affirm the faith, to affirm the faith strongly, maybe even to the point that, yeah, they go into full-time ministry. That's that's all very gratifying and, and provides affirmation of their value system.
0: Now this third one seems like maybe the hardest to to motivate efficacy. I mean from the outside seems like fundamentalists are not that efficacious. They don't, you know, I I don't know, they don't Seem to be able to convince other people very easily that they're. I mean, maybe this is this has uh, got to be all my own. This is where all my your, own biases This is where your peripheral beliefs
1: come in. Yep, exactly. The, okay. So, all right, so. nail me to the wall, Pete. <laughs> yeah. So for the fundamentalists, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens hmm. me. Yeah. God can move mountains. Okay. I haven't. I haven't seen. I, I live in a mountainous area. Those mountains haven't moved. But, yeah. uh, but and of course I I that there's one that I think that most fundamentalists don't take literally. sure. Uh, but but they really do believe that there's
0: a limitless uh, ability and opportunity if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you believe in that potentially limitless efficacy, then even smaller examples you will take as proof of the limitless one and so you're participating in a small way in something massive. That's right. So when got when I get that check because
1: I did not know how I was going to pay my bills that month, that's that's uh, showing the efficacy of of the faith.
0: yeah, okay, I get that. And then the last one is self-worth. Yeah. So now, this one also, if I can a little bit, I mean, you transgress the rules. this one's in serious uh, if you if you go outside the boundaries, this self-worth, at least in terms of the way your community is going to make you feel like you have it, yeah, is going to be yeah. really up for debate. So,
1: so uh, this one I'd like to expound on a little bit Please more. Please do, yeah. Uh, you, you said maybe in a couple sentences, but... No, uh, take but, your time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I think what's particularly applicable and for me, the favorite, ch- my favorite chapter in, in the book was the chapter on Amish people. And the reason, uh, first of all, I, I used to live in western Pennsylvania, and the Amish were all around us, so I I, I, I just I just found them to be fascinating people, yeah. and and it was fun to be uh, around that community. What drives the Amish more than anything else? The 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 principle of intratextuality. Their understanding of Scripture is the redemptive community. Okay, mm, okay, and and so here's the the riddles of of Amish culture can be answered. You know, why do they drive buggies? Why is it that they can use pay phones but they can't have phones in their own house? Yeah. Why is it that that you can have gas? heaters, uh, of, with, with, uh, with gas jets coming out from the wall, and you can have a portable heater, but you can't have an electric heater, uh, that will, uh, electric heating system, I should say, that will permeate the whole house. And it's always comes down to, is this good for the redemptive community? So the, the gas heater, the little portable one, means that you collect around the heater. Okay? Yeah, you can't go off to your own room and, and stay warm uh, in, the, in the middle of winter. The idea of, of cell phones, the reason why cell phones are problematic is you can become far too independent. Mm. The buggy, you can only go so far in the buggy. All right. Uh, that's the reason why it's okay to ride in somebody else's car if you have to get to a doctor or something, but you don't own your own car because independence. Okay? Right, okay. The redemptive community. And so self-worth is 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 then defined by the redemptive community. Now what's interesting is that they've also got a really harsh rule that if you as a if if your child does not abide by the rules of the redemptive community, if they intentionally violate that. then they're going to be shunned. And shunning is is really shame-inducing. You don't talk to them. You don't eat with them. You set up a table in the kitchen that's away from the table for the rest of the family. You act as if they do not exist. And the idea is if you don't buy into our system, then you don't exist. And if you make that a permanent decision, then you're out. Okay? Now that sounds pretty tough but 85% of the children in Amish families stay in the system. It's effective. It's effective yeah. and they find great value and self-worth by that. So it's a reinforcing system uh, that's there. Now that's probably one of the more extreme examples.
0: Sure. But, but that's it, what, but but it illustrates it's a typology. the principle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that is just Okay, so That actually kind of motivates even more this really frustrating catch-22 for me as I read your book and as I was thinking about it. So to outsiders, it seems like fundamentalists are misguidedly and desperately clinging to something that can't possibly be true. But from their perspective, a light has been shown on the true state of the world, and the rest of us simply can't see it. Now, making this even harder is that the different fundamentalist groups think that the light is illuminating different things. The snake handlers don't have the group thing and the shunning, you know, whatever. And then the Amish don't have the snakes and they don't have the same absolute truths inside their circle. So how do we think about this, this catch 22, this standoff, like what's the most compassionate and or accurate way to think about this completely unsolvable thing? I think in a
1: lot of ways it is to have a little different understanding in this is, is very difficult in our culture of, of the value of heritage. Okay. That, I mean, one of the neat things just, just getting to talk to some of the Amish is how much they really value their community. Uh,
0: and, and there's something good to be said about that. Sure. And if 85% of them stay, you have two options. One is this is an effective way to live life in the world and it looks like something that people would have lived 200 years ago mm-hmm. with with everybody would have been like that kind of or the other option is they're being brainwashed those are basically your two choices yeah. Otherwise, you can't explain the high number, the 85%. Yeah.
1: Well, there is actually one other
0: explanation. Okay.
1: Uh, and that is, uh, 85% stay in, not because they necessarily love their, their heritage or find great value or self worth through it. Uh, they stay in because they're gonna be hopelessly ineffective in the rest of the world because they only have an eighth grade education. That's mm-hmm. another thing that the Amish have fought for. Right. You don't need any more education. It makes you haughty. It yeah. makes you arrogant. Philosophy of yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. um so, so not that, just maybe not brainwashed
0: but sort of um handicapped. That's handicapped. By their yep. community. Yep, yep. Yeah. yep, That's what it what I
1: think it, it often boils down to for mm. for many of them. At the same time. If you talk to a lot of Amish youth, which it's not easy, the, the Amish were, were very suspect of any uh, efforts that I made to go in and do some interviews. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't easy to do that. But what little information that, that we were able to, to collect on that really told us that it is viewed as a sacred duty, not just because of the children. That's true for all uh, fundamentalist groups, but it was a sacred duty to keep the respect for the heritage that, that they had there. And, you know, something that I have a rich heritage, it's something that parts of it I don't agree with. I want to pass it on and have tried to pass it on to my children. I believe eternal destiny does reside uh, or or is determined by by whether or not a person accepts some of that heritage. That's my own belief system. It's the influence probably that I I grew up with during my formative years. But it's also just respect for, for, uh, and I think sometimes we don't, we we don't appreciate some of the the privileges that we've been given, and and sometimes our the, the heritage is, is there. So we often see it as restriction, especially in this day and age. Strong individualism, uh, the right of the individual to to question, to explore, to go out. The the rules of the house had some value in my estimation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think sometimes it's just it's it's in saying you know there was probably uh, some some value to the rules that the Amish folks have, that the serpent handlers have, and other religious traditions, to say that one is necessarily right, but it works for them
0: in many ways. Efficacious, not necessarily right. Yeah, that's right. We don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but it's interesting that your typology applies to Islam as well. Yeah. And so maybe just in a few minutes what are the most salient or interesting similarities or differences between well, the two?
1: Well, the specific content is obviously one. We we had an interesting dilemma there. So when we first talked about uh, the book and when we actually signed a contract was in the very late 1990s, okay? And we had until 2002 to finish the book. 9/11 happened. 9/11 happened, and our original view was to keep it within the Christian faith. This whole discussion of fundamentalism. So we're it's going to be a psychology of of Christian fundamentalism. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the publisher, major New York City publisher, uh, Guilford Press came to us and said, you got to deal with Islam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's also, I'm, I'm also interested, I'm glad you did. Yeah, I, I am too now. We were a little nervous, actually. I, mean, I, think, I think everybody's a little nervous sure. after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we ended up giving more of a historical example because none of the three of us at that time really knew a lot about Islam. Sure. And what we knew was not based upon knowing many people who were scholars. It was just reading about
0: that. And, and even in the last 20 years, I mean, the the kind of inter-religious dialogue has blossomed, oh, right? It's yeah. it's unbelievably different. Yeah. So what we ended up doing,
1: we looked at it historically through the Solomon Rushdie uh, episode. Yeah, so I it, thought
0: that was a fascinating chapter. Right, right. The satanic verses, He he basically presents this super— Kind of overly sexual and very much non pious vision of revisionist history of the Prophet Muhammad. That's right. He, he does like the most offensive thing he could possibly do. Basically,
1: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then we wanted to see
1: what was the the reaction of the of the fundamentalists. Well, it wasn't just the fundamentalist community, but just uh, the Islamic community in general. Yeah. Uh, and so we we couched it that way. Uh, I think today, if we were to write the book, we uh would be a lot more confident and, and in fact, I know so many now Islamic scholars that i I just had not had any touch with
0: well, so just maybe riff on this for a minute like would the intratextuality model still apply roughly the same way that you thought it would? you know are there any differences for how that would be applied? To Muslims rather than Christians?
1: No, I th- I th- I think it, it applies equally well to. So to basically,
0: mu- when you wrote the book, you weren't you didn't want to overextend your own expertise and apply it so straightforwardly. But now, actually, your confidence has grown. Yeah, that's right. Since then, okay. uh, yeah,
1: that's right. And in fact, in talking with some some Islamic scholars, we've asked them, okay, look at that model, look at at least the first couple chapters of the book. Yeah, can you apply it? And and we've gotten nothing but affirmative responses.
0: I mean, in one in one sense. It It should be even easier to come to that kind of a conclusion with the Quran because of the word-for-word inspirational doctrine, which we don't usually have in Christianity, although Perhaps some of these fundamentalists lapse into it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's right. Especially things like the systemic nature of things, the, uh, the way of life kinds of questions, I think are actually magnified in, in a lot of uh, especially traditional Islamic cultures. But even in, in the more open Islamic cultures like, like Egypt, you will, you will see the influence of, of the faith a lot more in that culture than, for instance, what we see of Christianity in our culture.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So just a couple things left here. Is fundamentalism waning in the world? Was it 18 years ago when you wrote the book? Do you expect it to wane or do you expect it to grow or stay roughly the same?
1: In terms of sheer numbers, if I had to predict, I would think that it might wane some, in part because of some of the things that we've talked about. For instance, media influences, just simply pluralism. Yeah. Yeah. But, I do think that it might stay strong in certain contexts and in certain geographic areas where those things might have less of an influence now everywhere I think in the, in the states, maybe with the exception of extremely poor communities there 's going to be that 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 media influence, uh, you know the internet and, and so forth. but the person to person contact, which I think is often still the strongest form of, right. of influence isn't going to be as, as readily available of for, with people outside of one's religious tradition in yeah. some parts of the country than in others. Small towns, small rural yeah. towns. Less so, urban. Yeah. That's right. Less urban. Uh, I think you're going to still see some, some strongholds there for quite a while. So I don't think there's going to be this, this major movement uh, over the next generation or two away from fundamentalism. In fact... You know, if anything, it might be the, the groups that are most vulnerable are the intertextualists, because uh, they're kind of giving a license, implicitly a license to go ahead and study uh, radical alternative understandings. And that might be enough for some people to say, you know, I, I think I've explained away uh, the faith.
0: And I was just, that's, so that leads right into this sub question, which is do you see a a path where evangelical America moves toward fundamentalism as they perceive the outside liberal culture? to be increasingly hostile in, in meaning rather than sticking with a, you know, a national review style Christian pluralism where they say, look, we're going to be the church, but we recognize everyone's right to exist. They're just going to more nativistically collapse into like, well, just give me a solid, coherent. Yeah.
1: worldview." You know, I don't know, but if I had to make a prediction, my guess is that there's going to be a movement among uh, evangelicals that according to this model, would be intertextualist, uh, and the movement is going to be in both directions. Yeah, they're going to
0: split, right? They're going to split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and, increased polarization will apply to yeah, this. Yeah, and well. I think, yeah.
1: yeah, I think polarization uh, is going to uh, become more and more detailed. I guess you might say, and it's going to get into smaller and smaller circles. Uh, the polarization that we sense in society right now is going to start coming down to uh, within denominations. I mean, we're already seeing it yeah, within a lot right. of denominations. I think it might even come down to you know within churches. So you might see churches splitting over this.
0: Yeah. yeah. I know you're a scientist, but I want to end with a, a kind of application question because sure. so many of my listeners uh, and in parts of my life Deal with this. This is not an academic question. It's a question of family. It's a question of loved ones and and deep abiding conflict. So, how should former fundamentalists or people with fundamentalists in their within their circle of loved ones? How should they approach them? Like, should they leave them be and not try and make them intertextualists? W- will they be happier if that part of their life isn't disturbed? Will will the relationships be better? <laughs> like, is it? I mean, there is a lot of ways to phrase this. Is it elitist for to just go? Well, they're going to stay intratextual, and I am not going to change that. Um, and I'll just talk about pleasant things with them. Like, I don't. Do you have any? Is there data? Do you, or, or is this just do you have anecdotal kind of? I don't know evidence. Like, what what should we do? Those of us who can't go back to an intratextual understanding of the world, but we still want to be in loving relationship.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, there, there, there needs to be some really, uh, take a a deep dive, a deep introspective dive into our motivations behind this. Uh, Are we, are we so convinced that we're right uh, and that they are wrong that we need to save them from this uh, misguided uh, theory? Okay. That to me, that's, that's starting to sound pretty pretty much like a fundamentalist.
0: <laughs> but okay, but just to to push back a little bit on that before yeah. I get the rest of your answer, even just if I read your book and I see like five or six different examples of fundamentalisms, they're not compatible with each other even. So in, in there's a sense in which it's obviously false in an objective sense. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk in inter-religious conversation about Maybe it's not true that all of these religions, these fundamental claims are definitely at odds. Maybe we're using metaphorical language for God. And maybe there's a way that like in God's mind, these things, you know, the the Muslim saying God has to be one, can't become human. The Christian saying incarnation. Maybe actually there's a way in which we're saying similar things about God that God can interpret as the same. But that only works with an intertextual move of softening the claims with this fundamentalism then no, you really cannot both be true, at least not the way they conceive of them to be true. Right. So these absolute truths on the model, they they shift around. And and it's like, so even if I'm not arguing for the great glory of an intertextual thing, just on their own face, they can't all be true. And so this is kind of, uh, this was my tension reading your book, and I talked with you about this on mm-hmm. in The Drive the other day, of like, I love that I'm seeing them more clearly in a less judgmental way, but at the same time, like, but they, it has to be wrong. So, what do I do? And you know what I mean. So that's just that's the yeah. pushback. I
1: So, have. so again, back to the motivational question. So, I mean, it, is your motivation there to 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 be right? Okay, sure. Uh, and and is it to uh, to win the argument? Okay, versus maybe your motivation just simply has to be a little less ambitious. Sure. Uh, and just simply to uh, to accept the fact that they are thinking within a particular context, uh, and it might be a, a limited context, and it might not be right, but it, it, it is something that, that they that – if you can show respect, and that's one of the things that I think I learned from my co-authors uh, on this more than anything else, that you show a lot of respect for these folks – And they're willing to to discuss. There are going to be some commonalities that are there, okay? And between you and your loved ones, for instance, who might hold to a fundamentalist position, identifying those. So if you can prioritize understanding versus change, versus persuasion. I think that will carry a lot of a lot of weight and I'll give you an example of this it, it's really not fundamentalism uh, dynamics uh, or or family dynamics around the fundamentalist question but in my own family and I'm not talking about my 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 parents and myself but I'm talking about my extended family on the hillside and that is that uh, most of it's Roman Catholic and what and, and there was a split among our grandparents some who were protestant and remain protestant but there was uh, a number of the siblings in this large family who converted to Catholicism? I always thought it was the other way around, but I learned that just recently. An interesting <laughs> <man>. <laughs> and uh, and and at that level, my understanding, and I did know my grandmother, who was one of the ones who stayed Protestant, who didn't. She said, "You know, there's a lot of tension I have with my siblings. We can't talk about this." Then I looked at the next generation, and the next generation, they were very guarded about it. My parents with uh, cousins and uh, of, of theirs. And so forth. Now, the generation that I'm part of, and now there's a, a generation that's following us, we openly discuss it and we appreciate the values. I've learned a lot about Catholicism because of discussions with my second cousins uh, about it, who have remained uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church. And they have much greater appreciation for the tradition that I'm part of. And it's just simply that we've learned to respect and to bring uh, uh to to bring an appreciation for what the other brings as well
0: oh, I don't know whether to applaud or to tell you how <laughs> naive that sounds <laughs> no, I mean of course I agree yeah. um oh it's just it's harder maybe when it's like your own parent or something and, oh it is and, yeah. and 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 the fundamentalist the closed the closedness uh the the totality of that worldview. Um, it does not allow the kind of flexibility that like a gay kid would mm-hmm. require mm-hmm. to be, to have the love from their mom that they need, you know, or whatever. And maybe there isn't, I mean, maybe it's like a little bit of resignation that like, look, unless this closed system opens up, which you can't force,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, yeah. it's just going to be yeah. that way. And, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a, adjusting one's expectations a little bit,
1: you know, Yeah, it is. I think, and that's, I guess, what I mean a little bit by taking the motivation to understand versus trying to change or persuade. Yeah, Uh,
0: And that requires a certain amount of maturity yourself and your own knowing yourself and being okay. And,
1: And we all come from different places and, you know, you've, you've, You've said you've said here in the in the podcast. You you mentioned this the other day in the car. Uh, you mentioned in an email to me. Uh, this is personal for you. This this there's a lot of hurt that you've gone through. I personally have not been in in that position. Yeah. You know, so it's a little bit easier for me to write about it and talk about it than somebody that's experienced it like you have. And that's, you wouldn't
0: know from how much I talk about it,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but, but that's the kind of respect that we have to have for uh, what each person is bringing to it. So even though if you, you know, even a fundamentalist parent, maybe they've made some pretty radical shifts from what they were taught. Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Well, that's
1: yeah. And you gotta, you gotta respect that. uh, Maybe what what seems to be a small step was a pretty big step for them. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank you for inviting me. I've really appreciated it.
0: Uh, Yeah, a great conversation. Thanks. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation today. In the show notes, I've got a link to Pete's book, and, uh, you know, the other stuff, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com. click, become a patron, email me, let me know what you're thinking. You have permission at gmail.com. Share these with friends, share them with loved ones, start conversations, and then let me know how those conversations go. I'm very curious. And I think I'll see you guys next week, maybe two weeks, no promises.